Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us back on Banter today is Chris Miller, who's a visiting fellow with us at AEI. He researches Russia, Russia-European relations, and semiconductors and the geopolitics of technology. He's also an assistant professor of international history at Tufts and is the co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. And his new book, Chip War, on the geopolitical history of the computer chip, is out on the day that this uh, podcast airs. So welcome to Banter, Chris, and congratulations on the book. Well, thanks for having me back. I'm very excited about having Chris today because uh, the book is coming out, and the book is a great book, and I've, I've read it, and I've got a lot of questions about it. Uh, you know, Chris is a Gene Kirkpatrick visiting fellow at AI, and that's one of our most favorite programs to recruit rising, brilliant young scholars to come and do work at AI, and that's been a big success. It's supported by our wonderful friends at the Scape Foundation, among others. Danny Plecka, the previous head of FDP, helped set that up. You've got to give all of those people credit uh, for uh, bringing Chris to us. And so I just want to—you're uh, you're a, you're a product of a, a lot of good people here at AI trying to help you with your work. Um, so I wanted to start out with a, a fundamental question that sort of—this may be sort of a reflective of me being concerned about my various family members who like me to do these podcasts in a way that— starts with the basics and then builds to complexity. So let's just ask this question. What's a chip and why is it so important? So a chip is a little piece of silicon that you'll find inside many of the devices that you use on a regular basis, not only your computer or a smartphone, but also microwaves and dishwashers and cars. Today, almost anything that has an on-off switch, with the exception of light bulbs, has some sort of chip inside of it. And chips are important because they enable us to remember and to compute data. And as devices have gotten more complicated and more reliant on computing, uh, more and more devices had chips inside of them. And uh, the history of them, of the of their of their creation and the technology behind them, is a great American story, as I understand it. And that's a story you tell in the book. And just give us the sense of of that enormous creation in Silicon Valley among, and also in Texas and other places. And tell us how that happened and who were the heroes? In the early days of the Cold War, the U.S. military was looking to find ways to more accurately guide missiles. And one of the challenges was how do you put a guidance computer in a missile that's powerful enough to guide it accurately, but small enough to fit in a missile. And doing so um, was a real challenge. Computers at the time were the size of a small room. They were immensely uh, demanding in terms of the amount of electricity they consumed. And there were a number of companies uh, in, in Texas, as you mentioned, and in California that were experimenting with new ways to produce computing power uh, using a type of material called semiconductors. Uh, and two companies uh, in the late 1950s, one called Texas Instruments, which is still around today, another called Fairchild Semiconductor, invented the idea of putting multiple electric circuits on a single piece of silicon, which let them um, compute on the silicon chips. 
And this initial invention, which was originally for missile guidance, ended up having broad applications throughout society. They're still used to guide missiles today, but they're also used for smartphones and computers and all the other devices we rely on. And all of this happened uh, initially in the United States. Um, it was focused in particular in, in the towns uh, south of San Francisco, which at the time weren't known as Silicon Valley and only became known as Silicon Valley after the silicon ships that they made uh, began to spread around the world. And you tell a couple of human stories about, and I always love these stories of CEOs who make decisions or, or, or things don't go their way that are kind of interesting. One involves um, Morris Chang and him losing out on the CEO job at Texas Instruments uh, and then the consequences of that. Just tell that story. Morris Chang is one of the most interesting uh, characters I uh, came upon when, when writing Chip War. Um, he was uh, born in China before the communists took power. Uh, after Mao Zedong's revolution, he fled uh, and eventually enrolled at Harvard, uh, where he was the only Chinese-American student in his class. Uh, he then transferred to MIT and studied uh, electrical engineering and physics, which at the time was a, really a, a cutting-edge field, um, and ended up in, uh, in, in Texas working for Texas Instruments. and played a really fundamental role in learning how to manufacture chips, which at the time was a real challenge. Uh, and he ran the production lines that helped uh, make chips from a really specialized product for, for missiles and other defense purposes to a consumer good that everyone relied on for their daily lives. It's just an amazing And he was American in the running story. to be, it, it really is. No, his, his career encapsulates the, the, the growth of the tech sector uh, over the past, uh, over the past three quarters of a century. And then what um, happened? What happened? He was he'd done all this well, great he work. Was, he was clearly the yeah. star. And, and what happened? He was in the running to be CEO. And for uh, reasons that are, are still unclear, he was passed over. Uh, and one of his, his colleagues was selected. And so he left Texas Instruments and was casting around for other things to do. And was approached by the government of Taiwan, uh, which at the time um, was far from a technological superpower, but wanted to uh, increase uh, the amount of uh, electronics production on the island and had lots of connections uh, with with the U.S. from Taiwanese-Americans who uh, worked in the U.S. to U.S. companies that have facilities in Taiwan. And so they gave Morris Chang a, a blank check, essentially, to build up the Taiwanese semiconductor industry. And he took the expertise that he'd honed in Texas and brought it to Taiwan and turned Taiwan into one of the center's of semiconductor production in the world. And today, the company that he founded, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, is the world's biggest chip maker. Wow. And is he still alive? He is. Yes. He uh, only recently retired, actually, from TSMC just a couple of years ago. So that's really a loss for the United States, although, you know, we played a role there. And then then tell us the story of Intel's Andy Grove uh, passing on an opportunity to partner with Microsoft. What was that about? Well, Andy Grove was one of the earliest employees at Intel, which was founded in uh, 1968 to, to make memory chips initially. Uh, it was kind of a classic Silicon Valley startup uh, from the early days of Silicon Valley. And, and Grove was a uh, immigrant from Hungary. His, his family had hid from first the Nazi armies and then the Soviet armies that occupied Hungary. He arrived in New York in the 1950s, studied electrical engineering and chemistry, uh, and became an early executive at Intel. And Grove was uh, notorious for his tenacity. He had all his employees show up at 8 a.m. sharp every day and 
uh, chewed out anyone who is a minute late. Um, and he built Intel uh, from the, the small company that it started as to the uh, to one of the giants in the chip industry and one of the companies that made personal computers possible. Um, he was given the opportunity in uh, in the in the early 2000s to begin producing uh, chips for a new device called a, a smartphone, a phone that would have computing inside of it. And, and Intel uh, thought that the idea was kind of crazy. It sounds like a niche product and so passed on the opportunity. Uh, and as a result, Intel, which was America's biggest chip maker, ended up playing a very small role in uh, the entire smartphone ecosystem. And today, around a quarter of all chips that are produced end up in a smartphone. Uh, and so Intel has really suffered from that decision I see. Uh, not to focus on smartphones. So does that mean that the Taiwan semiconductor firms, the term firms in East Asia, they're the ones that took up that business? That's exactly right. And Morris Chang realized that smartphones would be a, a crucial new product that very heavily on smartphones and today produces many of the chips that uh, are in smartphones. So I wanted to ask you about an illustration in your book. It shows East Asia produces colon 90% of all memory chips and 75% of all processor chips and 80% of all silicon wafers. And then you show that 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 is some of it's from Japan. Some of it's in Korea. A huge chunk is in Taiwan and some is in China and some is in Malaysia. So, that's the story of your book in some regard that they're capturing or that collection of countries, firms capturing this market. Is that right? Have I got that right? And how, and how did that happen? And what are the consequences of it? That is right. There's been a big shift over the past couple of decades towards fabricating chips, the actual manufacture of the chips in East Asia. And it's still the case that the U S is the most important country in the entire production process of chips. It's, U.S. software you use to design chips. It's largely U.S. companies like Apple or Qualcomm that do the really complicated designing of how a chip should be laid out. And today, an advanced chip will have uh, 10 billion uh, individual components on a piece of silicon that's one square inch or so uh, in size. So the design process is really extraordinarily complicated. And U.S. firms specialize in that. U.S. firms also specialize in the ultra-precise machine tools that you need to make chips out of pieces of silicon. So there's a lot that the U.S. still specializes in. And if you add up the overall supply chain, something around 40% of the global chip industry is still based in the U.S. So the U.S. is still the biggest player. But uh, more and more, the manufacturing of chips has shifted offshore, uh, partly due to cost reasons, uh, partly due to tax incentives that other uh, countries have offered, partly due to environmental regulations. There's a lot of really... Uh, toxic chemicals you need to make chips, um, but partly because uh, U.S. firms like Intel, as an example, uh, missed a couple of key uh, technological waves, and as a result, the customers that needed chips for smartphones, for example, went elsewhere. And the impact of this is that today, the U.S. produces only around 10 to 15 percent of the world's chips, even though we consume uh, over a quarter of the chips produced every year. And in particular, we're heavily reliant and the entire world is heavily reliant on Taiwan. Today, Taiwan produces around 90% of the world's most advanced processor chips. And TSMC, the Taiwanese company that Morris Chang founded, has capabilities that no American company and no other company in the world can really match. So we're, we're crucially dependent on peace in the Taiwan Straits for access to the most advanced semiconductors. 
And so does that justify, in your mind, government intervention on the part of the United States to incentivize or subsidize or protect uh, the manufacturing of chips inside the United States? Yeah, I think it's a, a complicated question. You know, the reason I, I titled my book Chip War is that because there are a number of different wars going on. There's obviously the military application of chips, which is really important. And if you think about advanced defense systems, they all rely very heavily on microelectronics. But there's also a, a competition between nations for who gets uh, more production in their borders. And I think I wouldn't be nearly as worried uh, if there was a much more diverse production base for chips or uh, if if we had uh, more chip production happening in Europe or in Canada or Australia. But the fact that it's all uh, concentrated when you talk about advanced processors in Taiwan, which is, of course, an island that the PRC wants to assert control of, uh, is an enormous risk for the United States and really for the entire world. And so I think government does have a role to play in saying, can we really tolerate having all of our technology be within such easy missile range of the People's Liberation Army? I think the answer is no. And where does um, Taiwan Semiconductor and Morris Chang come down on themselves or institutionally, if they have an institutional position, on the China-Taiwan issue? Well, TSMC has most of their production in Taiwan. Uh, they've been tremendously efficient at producing chips in a cost-effective way and in a way that uh, regularly improves their technology by having their production base there. And so the company itself has no desire to change the way it's doing business. But they recognize that there's demands from other countries to have a bit more diversification. And it's not just the U.S. It's Europe, it's Japan, it's Singapore. A lot of uh, key countries are getting worried about the concentration. And so they're pushing the Taiwanese government and TSMC to begin to open facilities elsewhere. And so TSMC is in the process of building a facility in Arizona. In the U.S., they've, uh, they've also invested in a new production facility in Japan. So there are some steps uh, being taken to diversify where they're building chips. But the reality is that most of their capital expenditure today still takes place in Taiwan, and we're going to be very dependent on advanced ships from Taiwan for the foreseeable future. But that wasn't my question really was, are they a reliable ally against the PRC in China? I see. Yes. No, I think in that, the answer to that question is yes. TSMC has been at the forefront of imposing uh, U.S. export controls when it comes to cutting off the supply of chips to companies that are working with the Chinese military. Uh, they imposed the ban on exporting chips to Huawei when the U.S. Uh, banned that company from accessing U.S. chips. And if you think about TSMC's business model, most of their customers are American customers. So Apple, uh, for example, is their biggest customer. And most of the tools they use in their facilities, the machine tools that make chips or the software that designs them, these are also uh, predominantly American products. And so TSMC can only do what it does. And what it does is magical um, in terms of the, the tiny transistors they can produce. But it's only possible because they've got access to a lot of tools and software that are uh, designed and produced in the United States. So it, there's not really much choice in the matter for them. They've got to apply U.S. regulations. They've got to work with us when we want to cut off certain Chinese firms because without access to our technology, their facility simply won't work. So I, I just last question on this one because it came up uh, when I was out on in California with some uh, uh, people that invest in these products or think about these issues. 
is China infiltrating Taiwan Semiconductor uh, through, you know, human assets? Is there is if someone said China's not going to invade Taiwan, they're just going to take it over by infiltrating major institutions like uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. Do you think that's possible? Well, I'm sure China's trying to do that. I think it's very, very difficult to do. You know, there's The production process for an advanced semiconductor is so complicated. There's 2,000 or so steps needed to make each chip, and each one of these steps involves moving a single-digit number of atoms in this way or that way across a piece of silicon. The, the transistors on a uh, on, a, on the processor in your iPhone, for example, are smaller than a coronavirus, and your iPhone will have over 10 billion of these transistors. And so TSMC makes these extraordinarily tiny transistors and does so with nearly perfect accuracy. So there's no one within their facilities that understands the entire production process. Uh, it's all so specialized that you need to really take over the entire facility and all of its staff and have them all cooperate to replicate what TSMC is doing anywhere else. And so I don't think it's really that plausible for China to, uh, no matter how much spying and intelligence it's got, to really gain that much um, in terms of knowledge that TSMC's got. And we actually have plenty of examples of places where uh, Chinese-backed firms or the Chinese government has tried to uh, steal data, for example, from U.S. semiconductor companies. The reality is that it's really hard to uh, copy and paste files and learn that much from them because there's so much knowledge in the brains of the semiconductor engineers who are operating these facilities that you can't just copy and paste. And that's why China's been trying to catch up but still remains pretty far behind. And, and I, Phoebe, I can't yeah. resist this because I just love this topic and the, the whole role of the supply chain and American yeah. firms and, and machine tools. And so whenever you mention machine tools, it gets me interested because... I have two brothers in the machine tool industry in the United States. So who are these machine tool manufacturers that are providing the equipment that builds the chips? If you want to make an advanced semiconductor, you've got to purchase tools from five main companies, uh, three of which are based in California. One is based in Japan and one in the Netherlands. And it's basically impossible to make an advanced chip without tools from these five companies. And they've all been in the business for decades, in some cases for almost half a century. And the tools that they make are among the most complicated tools humans have ever made. So, for example, uh, one of the types of tools you need is called a photolithography tool, which shoots uh, rays of light or ultraviolet light at, at the silicon chips and, and makes patterns on the chips that then let you uh, create transistors on them. And the most advanced lithography tools today cost $150 million a piece. Uh, they uh, involve, I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. They involve the most complicated engineering that, that really has ever been done. The flattest mirrors, for example, humans have ever produced, some of the most powerful lasers. They're really engineering marvels. Um, and you need multiple types of these tools to run an advanced chip path. So the, the machine tool companies, I think, are the, the part of the, production process that is least understood, but actually the science and engineering behind them is, is really the most fascinating part of it. And those firms will be providing the equipment to these new plants in Arizona and other and other products of the... And just, are were you pro the chip bill that passed in Congress and, and what was put forward on that? Yeah, in, in general, I, I think it was the right approach. We needed to find a way to reduce the cost gap of manufacturing between the U.S. and East Asia, and it's a cost gap that wasn't due to labor cost differentials, it was due to tax differentials, for example. Um, 
and we've just become too reliant on chip making in China and right along the border of China for our own security. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we talked about the CHIPS Act. I was curious also to get your take on, obviously there's drawbacks to relying on government incentives to increase domestic chip manufacturing. It just seems to me that businesses should have a vested interest in this already as Taiwan grows more and more precarious and the PRC's threats over that territory become more and more overt. Um, are you seeing that kind of push coming from private companies in the U.S., in Europe, to um, not even necessarily move more plants to the U.S., but just to route them through ally countries, as you've described? Like, it just seems like something that government shouldn't need to tip the scales too much for private companies to realize that that's a risk. Yeah, I think there is growing realization among um, business leaders in the U.S. and elsewhere about the risk. The challenge, I think, is that when you've got an industry like the chip industry where if you're looking to buy an advanced chip, the number of firms that can produce it for you is very small or in some cases one. And so you don't have that many options. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you want an advanced processor chip, the most advanced you can get, you've basically got to go to TSMC or maybe to South Korea Samsung is, is in the number two position. And those are the only firms that can produce it for you. You can acquire less uh, advanced technology elsewhere, but if you want them to be cutting edge, uh, you've got one or one or two options, and they're both in East Asia. And so there's only so much customers can do to ask for diversification if there's only two companies that can actually give them the products that they need. And so in, in that kind of industry, I think that's a place where governments do need to play a role and say, businesses alone aren't going to be able to push these firms to diversify their the geographies of where they're producing um, because there's not enough competition uh, to induce them to do so. And that's why we've had the U.S. government, the Japanese government, others uh, telling chip makers in Taiwan, Korea, and elsewhere that they've got to diversify uh, because in a position where uh, the Taiwanese and Korean chip makers are right now, they don't really have to listen to their customers on these types of questions because the customers have nowhere else to turn for advanced chips. Um, I, this is a little bit of a, of a, a wild pitch coming out of, you know, just my memory of something in my past. And, and if, if, it, if there's no connection here and you can't explain it, then, then we'll move on. But when I worked for Governor Pataki in New York State, there was a tremendous effort and a major government investment and partnership, I think with IBM and other firms, to build a very sophisticated technological center up north of Albany. And does that have? Do they? Does that does that ever come up to anything? Does that play a role in in the development or the supply chain of, of this of this product? It does, yes. And actually, upstate New York is is one of the centers of chip making in the United States today. IBM, almost a decade ago now, sold off their chip business. For a long time, they were one of the biggest chip makers in the United States, uh, and that company is is now called Global Foundries. Um, which does have a lot of chip-making capacity in the U.S. and uh, and in Europe. But that company decided several years ago that they were not going to try to keep producing cutting-edge chips because they didn't have the capacity to do so profitably. Um, ultimately, there's only uh, two or maybe three companies that can profitably compete at the cutting edge, TSMC, Samsung, and then maybe Intel, if they can improve their technology in the coming years. And no one else in the world has been able to do so in a way that's profitable. So Global Foundries pulled out of the cutting edge production, although it's still a big chip producer in terms of the 
quantity that it produces. It just can't produce the most advanced chips. I got it. So they've they're sort of they let the tough stuff off to other people, but they're doing the generic commodity product. They, they, they wouldn't uh, they, they wouldn't agree with the commodity product. <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Sorry about that. But but yeah, they're not doing the most cutting edge. Okay, so one last question on the book: Is there one point you want to make for uh, that that you haven't made already about? Because you basically just tell a fascinating story. I don't see a like a, 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 a like a you're trying to drive through a new policy in the United States, except you you support diversification. But am I missing something? Is there something about the way we do business in the United States that we need to change in order to solve? this problem? Well, I think the other thing that I was struck by over the course of the research is the extent to which the United States over the past several decades has underestimated the importance of advanced manufacturing in general, whether it's machine tools, whether it's semiconductors, uh, the role that advanced manufacturing plays in driving forward technological progress is something that we don't talk about nearly as much as we should. Um, when you have people graduating from uh, top programs and electrical engineering or computer science, they all want to go work at Google or Facebook and, and sell ads more effectively on Facebook. And I think that's fine. Um, but I think the really cool technology and the really important technology is is not optimizing social media, but uh, building ever more complicated products. And so I, I wish we were, and I hope this book helps in the process of realizing the ways that advanced manufacturing is the ultimate driver of technological progress. And a lot of the, the software and internet-based firms that we interact with more regularly are only possible because of the underlying improvements in technology that manufacturing has made possible. But you would concede that maybe we haven't gotten as much media attention and maybe a lot of graduates go one way when they should go another, but manufacturing has significantly become more technologically advanced and sophisticated without anybody really noticing. It may be what's driving more than anything else, the reduction in the workforce in manufacturing because they can do so much more with fewer workers. Am, am I am I right about that? I'm, there's some truth to that, right? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and the, the boundary line between manufacturing and tech is really broken down, I think. Yes, and I the machine tool companies and the chip industry are the best example. Like These are tech companies by any definition using really complicated uh, artificial intelligence and processes and and yet they're, they're building stuff, not just, uh, not just making ever more advanced apps on, on iPhone. Okay, now let's turn to the last question of the day because you also are an, a sort of expert on more other issues as well. And, and I just, when last we had you on, we talked a lot about Russia and Ukraine. Yeah. What's, your, what's, your, what's, your, what's your read right now? Well, it certainly seems like Russia's committing to doubling down uh, on its war effort. Russia is about to formally annex four Ukrainian obelisks to make them part of Russia by Russia's definition. And it's mobilizing several hundred thousand and maybe up to a million or so additional men into its military over the coming months. The The question, I think, is whether throwing all of these new recruits into the uh, front lines in Ukraine is going to make a difference for, for Russia. And on the one hand, it's a large number of people. On the other hand, we're getting initial news that some of the forces are being trained with just a week or two of training before being sent to the front, uh, which is probably not the, the strategy you'd, you'd optimally want to employ. So I think the Ukrainians do have a window of opportunity uh, before this winter to hopefully retake some more of their territory. And then the big question going into next year is, 
uh, can Putin hold together the military as its size grows dramatically and as the number of people who probably don't want to be there uh, grows at the same time? I think we've got to, unfortunately, assume that they can hold it all together, but I, I do think the risk of pretty damaging mutinies in the Russian military has also got to be growing uh, as more and more recruits with poor training and a disinterest in the war get put into trenches in southern and eastern Ukraine. Yeah, I, it sounds like you're, you're – are you a skeptical of the reports that are in the paper today about – how diff, how problematic their mobilization effort has been and this, you know, fleeing of the country by uh, men of between 20 and, and 50 and Putin dispatching soldiers to the border to stop them from leaving. And, or is that, is that, is that disinformation being circulated by pro-Ukrainian people or is that really happening? No, I think that that's really happening. And we got pretty good evidence that at least a hundred thousand, maybe 200,000 draft age men have fled the country in the past week or so. But I think with Russia, we've the way Russia exercises power is that it does so in a way that is disorganized and messy um, and and often looks embarrassing, but nevertheless, it exercises power regardless. And so just as Russia's war effort has been messy and disorganized, but nevertheless has left it in control of a, a fifth of Ukrainian territory after six months, so too, I think, the draft could, in a disorganized way, accomplish some of Putin's goals. Um, I, I hope it doesn't. I hope that the problems we see only grow over time, but I don't think we should assume that they will. Uh, and I think the Russian state is used to operating with a fair amount of chaos. That's how it historically always has operated. And the existence of chaos and disorganization doesn't mean that it's still not going to keep pushing in the same direction uh, over time. Um, so that, that's my fear is that the draft, it, it looks messy at first, and it remains messy, but in fact, you get thousands and thousands of troops at the front regardless. There's been a lot of interesting analysis that uh, throughout history kind of ties the Russian military success in wartime efforts to whether the conflict is perceived as a defensive or aggressive war. I'm curious for your opinion on if that's how that messaging from the Kremlin and from Putin has changed with the mobilization. Do you think that the average Russians that at first thought that this was a special military operation that wouldn't impact them, the change in that over the past few weeks, is that changing how they're perceiving whether it's an aggressive or defensive war? The way the Kremlin is now explaining this domestically is that it's, it's not just a war against you know, quote unquote, Ukrainian Nazis. It's it's a war against NATO and the United States, which the Russians say are behind Ukraine's successes. Um, so the, the Russian government's still describing it in, in sort of defensive terms, I guess if you can call it defensive. Does the average Russian believe it? You know, I, I think what we've learned over the past 20 years is that the average Russian is willing to believe a lot of nonsense from the Kremlin. And so I don't know that I would bet on uh, clearer thinking from the, the typical Russian at this point. I think what what has changed is that for the first six months of the war, the Kremlin was telling Russians that the war was not a war, it was a special military operation, and so it wouldn't really impact them. Mm-hmm. And now that's changing. Everyone is going to be impacted either directly or be a family member or a friend is going to be drafted. And the numbers of people that are being drafted is so large that, that everyone will know someone. Mm-hmm. And so there is some risk that Russians say, whether it's defensive or offensive, I'm not sure, I don't know, I don't care, but I was told this would be a low-cost operation, and now this is a high-cost operation. And I think that could have an effect 
but I I still think we shouldn't count on the Russians collapsing much as I might like them to uh, because they've held things together for six months and we know history suggests they can hold things together in a very messy fashion for a long time. I thought Phoebe's question was a great one because I, I think to the extent that the Russians believe that this is a defensive war, they will fight it. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that they believe it's an offensive war, you know, taking back territory from their friends in Ukraine, they're not happy about it. And uh, that, am I wrong about it? Does Phoebe, doesn't Phoebe have a point there that if they turn their rhetoric toward, you know, we're fighting for homeland Russia, not to take back Ukraine? Or am I wrong here? I think that is right. I, I think I think the Russian propaganda apparatus has the ability to describe almost anything as defensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so we we should uh, we should expect them to, no matter what Russia does, describe it as a defensive operation. And I am I am afraid the populace writ large is is willing to buy that. Okay. All right. Great conversation. Congratulations again on your book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology by Chris Miller. It really is great. It tells a great story of the development of very sophisticated technology. It's actually a story about, you know, human achievement. And um, I really appreciate you doing it and being on our podcast. Thanks a lot. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.